Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today, in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 7, verse 35. Once again, as you get your Bibles, Acts chapter 7, verse 35. Last time, we saw Stephen, the church's first martyr, speak before the Sanhedrin in his defense. Stephen spoke of the history of Israel, and while doing so, pointed out Israel's history of rejecting the men that God sent to bring deliverance to them. As we resume our study now in verse 35, Stephen is speaking of Israel's rejection of Moses. This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Now this is the constant pattern of Israel's history. The ones that God selected to be the prophets, to be the deliverer, to be the leader, they always rejected. It was always their pattern, and Stephen is showing the pattern even up to the present point. Verse 36, he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, him you shall hear. And so Moses promised that there would come after him another prophet like him and warned that Israel should take special care to listen to him. But just like Israel rejected Moses, so they are rejecting Jesus, who is that prophet that Moses spoke of. Verse 38 This is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us, whom our fathers would not obey but rejected, and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. Stephen has been accused of blaspheming the law, the law of Moses. So you can hear what he's saying here. Stephen is pleading not guilty. He's saying, I affirm that the law was given from Almighty God through the angel to Moses, whom your fathers would not obey. In other words, he's saying, I revere the law. But verse 39, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected. And in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make us gods to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. And they made a calf in those days, offered sacrifices to the idol, and rejoiced in the works of their own hands. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during forty years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You also took up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god Rimphan, images which you made to worship and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. In their rejection of Moses and the God who sent him, Israel turned instead to these corrupt idols, bringing upon themselves the judgment described in this passage. He's quoting there from Jeremiah. Now, Molech, as you know, was the sun god to whom children were being sacrificed. The idol had the head of an ox and had these iron arms stretched out, and there was a hollow place underneath the arms where a fire was built. The Israelites would put their babies on these arms, and they would sacrifice, and the babies would be burned. Molech was the god of the Amorites. Rimphan was the name of a god connected with the planet Saturn. 
And so he gives them a specific example from Moses' own day, showing that the people weren't all that devoted in worship to the real God. Verse 44, our fathers had the tabernacle of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he had seen, which our fathers, having received it in turn, also brought with Joshua into the land possessed by the Gentiles, whom God drove out before the face of our fathers until the days of David, who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling for the God of Jacob. But Solomon built him a house. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has my hand not made all these things? Now, what Stephen is showing them is this. You've accused me of blaspheming the temple, but you cannot, because first of all, the only structure God ever mandated was the tabernacle, not the temple. You see, the temple was David's idea, but never God's idea. God had a tabernacle built after a pattern that God showed Moses on Mount Sinai. The building of the temple was David's idea, but he never built it. His son Solomon built the temple. And even the one who built the temple realized that it could not contain God. Solomon wrote this truth, 1 Kings 8:27. He said, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you, how much less this temple which I have built. So Stephen is saying, in effect, you Jewish elders are guilty of blasphemy because you are containing God to a building. You cannot limit God to one place. Well, now Stephen is going to turn up the heat beginning in verse 51. He's used historical retrospection, but now he's going to get in their spiritual face. Verse 51. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Now these Jews would understand these terms. Stiff-necked, I mean proud, stubborn. They would not bow their heads. They would not bow their knees to anybody. Almost 20 times in the Old Testament, God calls Israel stiff-necked. These religious leaders are being just as their fathers were. He also says they are uncircumcised in their heart. In other words, the foreskin of their heart has never been removed. There had never been an exposure of their life to the grace and the mercy and the love and the glory of God. They were defiled, yet they refused to repent. In verse 52, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. And the Jews, listen, they were brutal to the prophets. They tried to stone Moses. They put Isaiah in a dead tree trunk, a hallowed out tree trunk, and sawed him in half. They threw Jeremiah into the dungeon several times. Finally, they stoned him to death, and they killed Zechariah in the temple. So Stephen says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one. So these ancient prophets were telling about the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, and they were persecuted. Of whom, now watch what he says, of whom you now become the betrayers and murderers who have received the law by the direction of angels and have not kept it. So he's saying, you accuse me of slighting Moses, but you have slain the prophets and you have even slain the Messiah himself. 
Well, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, the force of the Greek here is that the members of the Sanhedrin wailed in erratic, wild, jeering shouts of anger and hostility. The descriptive phrase, cut to the heart, means that they were unbelievably convicted. You see, the raw nerve had not only been touched, but it had been cut to the core, and they gnashed at him with their teeth. Now, there would be 71 of these men in the Sanhedrin. Can you imagine this? Do you know what it means? It means that they ground their teeth at Stephen with a hissing sound, exposing them in a hateful screwing up of their mouths. This is not a pretty picture. And the idea of gnashing of teeth can't help but remind us of the imagery of hell. Seven different times, Jesus describes hell as a place of weeping and of gnashing of teeth. These God-rejecting religionists are revealing themselves to be quite literally citizens of hell. And they were so stirred by this truth, they couldn't stand it. But you see, that's what truth always does. You must either accept it or fight against it. Truth never permits you to remain neutral. It never leaves a middle ground. It always bursts through and drives you to either one side or the other. Verse 55, but he, that is Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, look at that contrast. They were filled with rage. Stephen was filled with the Holy Spirit. But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Isn't that great? Now, that's a significant scripture because all of the other scriptures in the New Testament that talk about Jesus being in heaven talk about him sitting at the right hand of God. You see, Jesus stands to give a standing ovation to Stephen, whose fate makes him unique among all believers, the first of all martyrs among the followers of Christ. Verse 56, and he said, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now, those are almost the identical words that Jesus himself had used before this same group just a few weeks earlier at the trial of Jesus. Now, turn to Matthew 26, and we're going to look at that for a moment. Save Acts 7. We'll come right back. Matthew 26, go all the way over to verse 62. And the high priest arose and said to him, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus kept silent, and the high priest answered and said to him, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, It is as you said. Nevertheless, I say to you, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And at that point, the high priest tore his clothes, swiftly moved to crucify Jesus because of who he claimed to be. When they heard Stephen say this, you see, they knew the issue was Jesus, not Stephen. I mean, what do you do with Jesus of Nazareth? They were condemned by their own scriptures. There was not a word that they could say against Stephen. The very scriptures that they professed to believe and follow in his mouth had condemned them, and they knew it. The issue was clearly Jesus, and they either had to crown him or to crucify him again. They either had to kiss his feet or kill his servant, one or the other. 
and so they kill his servant. And we read, let's go back to Acts chapter 7 again. In verse 57, it says, Then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears, and ran at him with one accord. Two weeks ago, in our first week in Israel, we stayed three nights on the Sea of Galilee in Tiberias. And then every day we would travel around and to all the different areas in the Sea of Galilee. And we went to the place that we read about this morning in our scripture reading, where Jesus cast out the demons from the man, the legion of demons from the man from Gadara. And they are positive that this is the same place because it's the only place around the Sea of Galilee, basically it's just rolling hills. It's the only place that has a steep drop off. And, and it's like a cliff and they have tombs there. They have caves, they're open caves. That's where the tombs were. And so this was the exact place where Jesus cast the demons into 2,000 pigs and they ran into the sea. Now it's interesting that in verse 57 here, where it says they ran at him, the Greek word there is hormao, and it is the same word used to describe the mad rush of the herd of the swine into the sea in Mark 5 and verse 13. You see, this was an out of control, demon-possessed mob who were rushing now at Stephen. And verse 58 says, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Since no blood could be spilled in the temple precincts, they dragged Stephen outside the city wall for one of the most painful and prolonged methods of execution imaginable. I'm going to read to you from the second century Mishnah. It describes the practice of stoning. Listen to it, and I quote. When the trial is finished, the man convicted is brought out to be stoned. When ten cubits from the place of stoning, they say to him, Confess, for it is the custom for all about to be put to death to make confession, and everyone who confesses has a share in the age to come. Four cubits from the place of stoning, the criminal is stripped. The drop from the place of stoning was at least twice the height of a man. One of the witnesses pushes the criminal from behind so that he falls face downward. He is then turned over on his back. If he dies from the fall, that is sufficient. If not, the second witness takes the stone and drops it on his heart. If this causes death, that is sufficient. If not, he is stoned by all the congregation of Israel." End quote. When you go to the garden tomb in Israel, the garden tomb is right next to Golgotha, which is called the place of the skull. The reason it is called the place of the skull is because you can see two eyes and a nose and a mouth. And when we take pictures of it, I hope those pictures come out, you will be able to see that. Golgotha is on Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham took Isaac to be sacrificed. And it's the same place where the Father in heaven sacrificed his son, Jesus Christ, on Golgotha, which is at the end of Mount Moriah. But in Christ's time, they had cut out from the city wall all the way to the end of Mount Moriah, all the way to Golgotha. They had cut out Mount Moriah and they made it into a stone quarry. And it is believed that that's where they took Stephen. They took him to Golgotha and they pushed him off into the stone quarry and they there stoned him. And so he died just a few feet from where Jesus died as well. 
Well, at the end of verse 58, it says, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. He died a lot like Jesus, didn't he? When Jesus died, just before he died, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Reminds me of the violent death of Savonarola. Savonarola was a man of tremendous spirit. He loved the Lord Jesus so much, and he preached the Lord Jesus. And because of that, he was threatened by the papal legate that if he continued to do what he was doing, he would be excommunicated from the church. He continued, and so they did excommunicate him. And the messenger of excommunication read the fatal decree to Savonarola, closing it with these words. I separate thee this day from the church militant and from the church triumphant. To which Savonarola replied, from the church militant, yes, but from the church triumphant, never, because it is not in your power to do so. At that point, they seized Savonarola, they tortured him, they hanged him on a gallows, and he burned his body with fire. That's so close to what they did to Stephen. The angry crowd seized him and they cast him out, but they could not separate him from God. They stoned him to death, but they could not blot out his vision of heaven. They took away his life, but they could not take away his fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ, whose glorious face he saw as he was stoned. Stephen died in defense of the faith. Now notice that it says in verse 58, And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now how did this complete long address of Stephen find its way into the Bible? Saul remembered every syllable and word of it, and he told it to Luke, who wrote it down. Saul was there, and he saw the face of Stephen like the face of an angel. And he was there when Stephen, dying on the ground, lifted up his face and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the majesty on high. And probably him watching and hearing Stephen is what is referred to when Jesus knocks him off his horse in Acts chapter 9 when he's on his way to Damascus. Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, is it hard for you to kick against the goads? You see, Paul was under tremendous conviction. He had never seen anyone die like this. He had never heard a defense like this. And it changed his life. And it changed the scope of church history. As Luke recounted this part of the book of Acts, the apostles are not even mentioned. But Stephen and his marvelous defense of the faith are carefully delineated. He wasn't an apostle. He was not a pastor. He was not an ordained minister. Stephen was just a layman. He was a servant. He represented the great laity that won the Greco-Roman world to the Lord. And for us to persuade ourselves or to think in any way that the kingdom of God is dependent upon the preacher or the pastor or the staff or a missionary is tragic indeed. The kingdom of God moves in the spirit of all the men and women who make up the kingdom of our Lord.
These mighty witnesses affirm the truth of Christ beautifully and powerfully and gloriously as can be found anywhere in the ministry. I believe that there is a deep and everlasting meaning that the first martyr, the first man to lay down his life for Christ, was not Peter, nor James, nor John, nor any of the other apostles, but he was a layman defending the faith, and he sealed his defense with his own blood. That kind of a witness will make any church great and any ministry strong. And so may we as Paul never forget the vision that Stephen had of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And may it help us to be a wonderful witness to him in our living, in our walking, our working, our coming, our going, and our speaking, all of it flowing out of our relationship to him. In the center of Main Street in Enterprise, Alabama, stands one of the strangest monuments in all the world because it is a memorial to an insect. Handsomely carved in stone is the likeness of a boll weevil. Many believe that divine providence was involved in the circumstances that led to the building of this unusual statue. In the early plantation days, almost everyone in that particular community raised cotton. But as the years rolled on, a serious pestilence infested the area in the form of a small beetle that punctured the bowl, that is the B-O-L-L, of the plant. And as a result, it became almost impossible to bring a season's growth to maturity. Well, George Washington Carver, along with several other scientists, became deeply concerned about the situation. They began intensive studies to see if any kind of a substitute crop could be grown there. Well, they found that raising peanuts was the answer. The boll weevil didn't harm it at all, and in time, cotton gins were forgotten in that region, and it became known as an outstanding peanut center of the entire world. Soon the farmers' profits exceeded what they had earned from their best cotton yield, and in the end, they realized that this destructive insect that they had feared had actually triggered the research that brought them prosperity. So they erected this monument to a destructive little insect that in reality was a turning point in their lives. What looked like devastation and ruination was in reality the turning point, the seed that brought life and growth. And that is very similar to what happened to the early church. What looked like devastation and ruination and possibly the very end of the church was in reality the seed, the turning point that brought new life and caused it to grow beyond anyone's expectations. In Romans 8:28, it says that we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. And that is exactly what God did with the stoning to death of Stephen at the end of Acts chapter 7. Now, as you recall, in, in the first part of our study in the book of Acts, back in chapter 1, on the day that the Lord Jesus ascended from the Mount of Olives back into heaven, before he left, he said in Acts 1.8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth. And the book of Acts is the story of how all of that took place according to the program that Jesus had designed in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and then the end of the earth. We have come in our Acts adventure to the point where the gospel begins to go out to Judea and Samaria. It is a great turning point in the life of the church.
Until now, it has been centered in Jerusalem only. And the church in Jerusalem, when you stop and think about it, it must have been like heaven on earth. I mean, they numbered already more than 50,000 people. And they had the apostles to minister to them. I mean, just think of listening to Peter preaching the power of the Holy Spirit every week. Imagine talking to John, the sainted apostle who leaned on the breast of our Lord at the Lord's table at the Last Supper. And think of looking and listening to the apostles and all of the wonders that they did. Even the shadow of Peter falling upon the sick could heal them and raise them up. I mean, just imagine a church like that. It was as though the Lord had poured out upon them the greatest blessing that even God could bestow. Now, some time has gone by in this account since the day of Pentecost, that is, since the day of the beginning of the church. Some believe that it's probably about six years at this point, and the apostles and disciples and the church are still in Jerusalem. But now we are going to see how God thrust them out into Judea and Samaria. Verse 1, chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. The word consenting there means more than our meaning of the word consenting. It means to willingly approve, to approve with pleasure, to delight in. Actually, it means to applaud what's going on. In other words, Paul was standing there clapping when Stephen was being stoned to death. He was pleased with Stephen's death. An inflamed fury had been building in him against the church because he felt that the preaching of Christ threatened his religion, which was Judaism. Now, Paul himself will admit that he acted this very way. In Acts 20, verse 22, he says this. Listen to it. He says, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by, consenting to his death, and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Verse 1, Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. Now, Paul tells us later on also in his own words that Stephen wasn't the only one who was put to death. Acts 26.10, he says this, This I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And so now he consents to the death, and it says that at that time a great persecution arose against the church which was at Jerusalem. What it means is, is that it began very quickly. In fact, it began on the very same day because of the words in the Greek, at that time, they mean the very same day. You see, Saul wished to act and to act quickly to wipe out the whole church. The believers were now frightened. You can imagine how they felt. They're on the run, and he had to strike immediately to catch them before they could escape. The end of verse 1, and they all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now think of that tragedy. It says there was a great persecution against the church at Jerusalem and that they were all scattered. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way. <laughs>